If you guys want to go ahead and grab a seat, we got a ton to cover today, so definitely need to, to get started, but excited to see uh, everyone here. Welcome. Uh, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here um, at Damascus Road. Merry Christmas. Uh, again, glad you guys could join us. Um, we have a ton uh, to cover, but we are... Um, uh, as we've said, lighting these candles at the beginning uh, of each service, for the last month we've been in a season of Advent. And so we've been preaching through that Advent story at the beginning of the book of Matthew. And so we will be uh, in the book of Matthew for about, oh, I don't know, a year and a half, two years. But, but we kick things off uh, really to be, um, be teaching these texts during this time. And so um, this is kind of part two of what Sam preached last week uh, of chapter two. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter two. We will have uh, that text up on the screen as well. But to catch you up from where we were at last week. Um, Last week, we saw uh, that the God of the universe puts a star in the sky, and it leads some some wise men. uh, The text uses the word magi. uh, Some wise men from possibly the land of Moab, a pagan land that does not love the Lord. But they see this star, and they want to go and follow this star to see the king of the universe be born. And so these wise men travel a great distance over a great time to come into the city of Jerusalem which is the capital of Israel, um, and, and they expect to find the king in the palace. And they come to the palace, and they meet the king of Israel. Um, his name was Herod at the time. But they ask him, and they say, um, where is the one who is to be born king of the Jews? And instead, they're talking to Herod, who is not born king of the Jews. He's actually, as we talked about last week, illegitimate as a king. He is not even uh, fully Jewish. He's actually a puppet of Rome who bought the kingdom in order to oppress people and increase his glory and his stature. And so Herod, um, uh, Herod knows his Bible. He's got some good pastors around him, if you will, that know their Bibles and say, hey, uh, looking at the Old Testament, it says that the king, the Messiah, the one who's going to save us, is going to come from the town of Bethlehem. And all these great religious guys are so excited about meeting King Jesus that none of them travel to Bethlehem to go see him. And so Herod sends the wise men and he says, go down to Bethlehem, which is a town uh, just about six miles south of Jerusalem. So uh, about from here to Everett. Um, And uh, again, I think it's crazy that the religious guys wouldn't even travel, you know, across the flats to go meet Jesus. But that's another point. Um, They leave, uh, they, they come into Jerusalem. Sorry, come into Bethlehem. And they, they follow the star there, and they, they come to the home of Joseph and Mary. And, and there they meet uh, a, a baby Jesus or a toddler Jesus who's somewhere between 6 and 18 months old. So they come there. It's not Christmas night, uh, as you may be led to believe, but they come at that time. Um, Jesus is, like I said, probably a toddler. Um, and, and they come, and they celebrate. They celebrate this king who they know will end the kingdom of Moab that they just came from. But they know that this is the one true king. And so they come and they celebrate him. And they give him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And, and, and there's this great day of celebration. Again, you've got to put yourself in this story that Bethlehem's a small town. There's this royal entourage of foreign dignitaries coming in to this little house. They're celebrating. There's this big party. But the whole town knew about what was going on. And, and night falls. 
And the, um, we saw last week that the, um, the, the wise men were warned in a dream to not go back and tell Herod where King Jesus was, but instead to go back to their land uh, another way away from Herod. And so we, they go and, and they, they look forward to telling their, their, their old kingdom about the new king uh, who's coming. And so um, we see that the wise men's response last week was one of joyful obedience and one of sacrificial worship. And so in this passage today, starting in verse 13, we're going to see Herod's response to King Jesus and how he responds with fear, with anger, with violence. And we'll see how God choreographs around and through man's violence and pain to protect Jesus to reaffirm Jesus' identity as the Savior, as the Messiah of his people, how God gives hope to the broken, and how he reveals his character to the humble. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 13. We're going to go all the way to the end of the chapter. It's a a long passage, but we'll break it down. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child, his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. This is God's word. So um, this is a text that um, Linus on Charlie Brown doesn't read, right? Um, It's not one that you even typically want to address at Christmas, right? Because you just, you have uh, the wise men, you got the gifts, baby Jesus. And then we see that there is this, this dark turn. And again, I think it's, it's amazing to, to think about that this was an incredible 24 or 48-hour turnaround for Mary and Joseph. They're living their lives, their child's, like I said, you know, 6 to 18 months old. And all of a sudden, this, this royal train of, of, of foreign officials comes into town, and there's this big, great party, and they go to bed after the party, and all of a sudden, there's this dark turn. The party is over and Joseph is warned in a dream to, to rise. I mean, the day before had to be as exciting a day as when shepherds 
came in from the field and said, we saw angels singing and they said your son was going to bring peace on earth, goodwill towards men. And I bet actually the day with the, the wise men was probably more exciting because they brought presents, right? Shepherds didn't bring any presents. They just stunk. Um, wise men come with presents, but then all of a sudden there's this turn. And so shortly after they left, the young family takes what they need, what they have, which is a little bit more, right? Because the, the wise men had just given them some gifts and they covertly leave in the middle of the night for the land of Egypt. And what I want us to see first is that God's timing is perfect. It was a year or two earlier that he placed a star in the sky. He had the magi and the wise men traveling for months and months. And then he has them give this gift of gold to Mary and to Joseph. And the next day he says, you guys are going to leave everything you have. And you're going to have to travel to Egypt. You're going to have to start a new job. Um, you're going to have to have a lot of expenses and, and you're to stay there, they say, until I tell you. Not until it gets hard. Not until um, they think things are safe. Not until they just kind of decide to go somewhere else. No, Joseph's obedience to the Lord is immediate. He picks up his family immediately. It is complete. They, they go right away to Egypt and he waits, and he waits, and he waits, and he does not know what is next. I know that many of us have had situations in our lives where we've been called to act, called to move, called to go, and not known what is next. And God just tells Joseph, wait. It's going to be fine. And more than that, he provides for them. Like I said, he gave them gold. That's portable wealth. So when they roll into Egypt, they roll into a place like Alexandria, a big city with uh, uh, expensive rents and, and everything else to get a business started. All of a sudden, they got a nest egg. They can survive. God's provision is perfect. He didn't give them any more than they needed, and he gave it to them exactly when they needed it. And that should be, uh, in some sense, comforting to us. Um, so the question I have for you is, what is a way that God has provided for you in a particular hour or time of need? What has a time been when things have looked dire or when things have, have been uncertain and yet God says, I'll give you just enough? It's happened to, to my family many times. Even just, uh, we were exiled to the nation of Texas for a year um, and uh, uh, didn't know how long we'd be there. And the day, uh, actually, that our twins were born, uh, probably the day after, I guess, president of my company calls up and says, I bet you'd like to move back to Washington. Yes and amen. Yeah, I definitely want to get out. Um, and so, uh, but God provided. For months and months, Tara and I didn't know, how are we going to get back home with our babies? And just that day, Right at the right time, we had worried enough, and God said, you're coming home. But, but God sends this family to Egypt. I think that's important. We need to ask ourselves, why did God send them to Egypt? He didn't tell them, go back home to your family in Nazareth. He didn't tell them to follow the wise men back to Moab, because wise men were excited for them, right? They could probably even protect baby Jesus, because they had this royal entourage with them. No, he tells them to go to Egypt. And see, at that time, and even, even in history before that, uh, Egypt was this classic place of refuge for the Jewish people 
when they were fleeing oppression uh, in, their, in their land, in, in Israel. Um, in several instances in the Old Testament, there are actually kings who threaten the lives of, of young boys who would be king. And, and you see that, that, that those families flee to Egypt until, until they die or until there's a time of safety. Um, as well, um, Egypt at this time had a massive Jewish population. Historians believe that there was about a million Jews in Egypt at that time, which is the same amount of Jews as lived in Judea in Israel. See, people for 30 years had been leaving Herod's rule and said, well, Egypt may be pagan, Egypt may be under Roman authority, but at least it's not under Herod. And so it would have been culturally easy for them to find an immigrant community to to engage with. Um, and, and, And there's even a large city like Alexandria where they could have just blended in. And nobody would have had to know that this was a king, or rather this was a child who was under the threat of the king. And so those are all practical reasons, right? We make lots of decisions for practical reasons. What makes sense? What looks good on paper? But... But Matthew's not saying, well, it just was a safe place. He, he tells us in this text that the main purpose that God sent this family to Egypt is, is bigger than just the family. He wants to show all of Israel that their history of redemption, God saving them from slavery in Egypt, the Exodus, all of their history points forward to Jesus And so Matthew quotes Hosea 11.1, which says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. See, in the Old Testament, the whole nation of Israel was metaphorically known as the Son of God. And their story, we won't go into detail, but their story is they were enslaved in Egypt. There was a fearful king who wanted to slaughter their children. There was one child who was spared. He was made royal. He was exiled. And he returns to Israel and delivers his people from slavery. That's Moses, right? And then God's people spend 40 years in exile out in the wilderness wandering around. In a couple chapters here in Matthew, we'll see Jesus, as he starts his ministry, spends 40 days fasting and wandering the desert in temptation uh, from Satan to um, prepare for ministry. And so Jesus starts his ministry, and he says he's going to set captives free and oppose evil and, and, and heal sin and brokenness, and, and he's going to secure this promise of salvation. So Matthew's telling a first-century Jewish audience, he's telling us that, like my kids' Jesus Storybook Bible says, Um, In the Old Testament, every story whispers his name. Matthew says, no, in Exodus, it screams his name. Because this is a point of transition in the worship of God. This is the first time that Matthew calls Jesus, refers to Jesus as the Son of God. And so for all of human history before, God's children were defined by a people, Israel. And now with Jesus arriving, all of God's people are identified with a child, his son, Jesus. No longer does race or nationality or heritage determine your favor from God, only your relationship with Jesus Christ from now on. So there's this point of transition. 
Because Jesus is the one fulfilling every prophetic scripture. And what I love about the way this was done, the way this story unfolds, is that God and Matthew, through his writing, is clear. These aren't coincidences. It says an angel told Joseph to go. In Malachi, we heard God called the Lord of hosts, the God of angels' armies. God used one of his soldiers, one of his angels, to direct this battlefield and choreograph all these actions to say, nothing that Jesus does, nothing about his life, even when he's an infant, was an accident. God is in control, and he's orchestrating all things. See, there was a battle going on. Herod wanted to wage war And God lets us know from the beginning that there was no danger for Jesus at all because God had outflanked Herod through his actions. But we we move on to the second section of the scripture. And while Jesus is never in danger, the same can't be said for the sons of Bethlehem. So we come to this section where, where we see Herod's response. And we see that we know a lot about Herod, right? We've known that he's this great builder and he has these uh, accomplishments for building and he's this great manager. But everything we know in the Bible and in history about Herod's character is, is not good. It is evil. We know that he regularly had officials who opposed him killed. He, in his own family, he killed two of his ten wives, one of which he called his favorite, He killed three of his sons because they threatened his throne. So for Herod to sign an order to kill a few peasants' kids was was like nothing for him. Why not just kill a few dozen peasant kids to hoping to kill the one who was born king of the Jews? And so what's interesting is that even Herod, his order was so commonplace that modern history doesn't even really talk about it. Like, this is not a big deal in the land of Israel at that time because Herod is killing people by the hundreds and thousands. And so, there's a dark irony here. See, Herod's response to King Jesus, when you compare it to the wise men who were from pagan Moab, is so different because for centuries in Moab, it was commonplace for them to kill children to sacrifice their children to Chemosh. Kings, even when their lives were threatened, would kill their own sons, hoping to protect their kingdoms. And yet from the beginning, God's people in, in Deuteronomy are commanded not to engage in this practice. Deuteronomy 18, 9 and 10 says, When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable uh, practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or daughter as an offering. See, at that time, the wise Moabites enthusiastically worshipped Jesus, even knowing Jesus would destroy their king. But the Jewish king, Herod, wantonly sacrificed numerous children hoping to destroy who was the true king. And Herod, as efficient as he was at building, he was more efficient at killing. And so, he doesn't waste any time. As we said earlier, Bethlehem is six short miles away from Jerusalem. Well, Herod had a garrison, 
killing squad two miles away from Jerusalem. It was two miles away, rather, from Bethlehem. So at the moment that they received that order, within an hour, there were boots on the ground in the city and moving out to the neighboring countryside to leave no doubt that that king, that child, would be gone. See, Herod was a believer. Herod believed that Jesus was the king. Herod knew his Bible and used it to determine the time and the place of Jesus' birth. Everything he knew about God, he used to wage war against God. You read from Jesus' brother in the book of James, chapter 2 says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Herod believed that God was one and that God was Jesus. But that verse goes on and says, even demons believe and shudder. Herod believed. Herod shuddered. And then Herod struck back as violently as he possibly could. See, as we said last week, there's no such thing as a lukewarm response to the gospel. Wise men worship and obey and celebrate. Herod responds with fear, rage, violence, and that leads to terror. That leads to pain. That leads to destruction and grief for others. And so my question for you this morning is, what are you or what have you been afraid to lose? What have you, how have you responded when it's been threatened? See, the effect of your fears is rarely limited to yourself. When you have fear, it affects others and it impacts others by your decisions or by your indecisions. And so, what have you been willing to destroy? What or who have you been willing to hurt to protect something you thought was precious to you? See, we can come to a section of Scripture like this and we can wonder and ask, why would God allow such violence and pain to, to happen to, this fam- to these families and not have a great answer. But Matthew, Matthew gives us the answer. He says, go back. Look at Jeremiah. Look at what the prophet said. So if you have your Bibles, go to Jeremiah 31. It'll be up on the screen as well. But Matthew quotes this verse in Jeremiah. I believe it's, it's, it's even possible that the rabbis in Bethlehem were probably quoting this verse to, the, uh, to the, the families. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel's weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. There is a depth and an anguish of this grief. And we see here I want you to know in, in whatever grief or anguish or pain you've ever suffered that God sees it. God hears their mourning. He knows it's a bitter grief. It says here because she refuses to be comforted. These mothers refuse to be comforted because their children are no more. Nothing will alter the fact that these infant children were killed in Bethlehem. And so grief remains And I don't want us to minimize this tragedy just because it's in history. Because this is a hostile response to the gospel. 
most estimates say, and this number kept coming over and over this week, that there were 20 boys that age in that area. A year ago, 20 mothers and fathers lost their kids in a school shooting in Newtown. And our nation wept with them. This is what happened to the families in Bethlehem. Only no one was there to weep with them because it wasn't newsworthy. See, in the last year, three times as many kids have been killed on the south side of Chicago, but we don't talk about it. Just the mothers, just the fathers, just the pain. And they ask why. And my hope is that they had good pastors that knew God's word and read on in Jeremiah and said, let's go to verse 16. Verse verse 15, there's no hope, but 16, there's hope. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping, your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. They shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. Your children shall come back to their own country. Being here, participating in this world, is painful, and it is work. And God says for those in Christ, it is not in vain. We do know, and these verses absolutely point to Jesus, the Christ child. He will return from exile. That is, that is good news. He will lead his people to a new and a perfect country. And while that should be comforting to us, they didn't know that. They needed a different... They need a different type of comfort. See, yeah, Jesus is safe. But Herod had exiled their children violently to an enemy's land of death. So let's not just be relieved that baby Jesus is safe. But know that God heard the cries of those mothers and those fathers. And so we... We believe in a God who saves. We believe in a God who loves children and who hates murder. And so, while, as I said, this text absolutely, clearly, specifically points to Jesus Christ's return. It's my belief and my hope that they had a good pastor that read on and said, your children may be far from you, but God has delivered them from exile and death and he is in their kingdom now and they are safe and there is hope for your future. See, this was this is a big day in Bethlehem. Everyone in Bethlehem knew Joseph and Mary and Jesus. It was a small town. The entourage had come in, so when the soldiers come in to grab children, they say, no, the king, the king child, the Christ child, they're at Mary and Joseph's house. Don't take our sons. They would have noticed in the aftermath that Jesus was gone. It would have been so easy for them to put two and two together who Herod was truly after. And so in Bethlehem, Jesus' name was not met with the advent feelings of of peace and hope and joy and love that we get to experience. Jesus' name 
for years meant grief and sorrow and pain and loss and violence. But it is the way that God said it would be. Isaiah 53, verse 3, is is one that many are familiar with. It says, he was despised. He was rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief as one whom men hide their faces. He was despised, but we esteemed him not. Again, this verse absolutely and clearly points to Jesus' work on the cross. He was a man of sorrows there, but Jesus' name was acquainted with grief from his infancy. Jesus was born in the city of Bethlehem because he was a king. But he knows the sorrow of Bethlehem because he's a suffering savior. He knows where we are in our pain. He knows where you are in your pain. And so God can take us into the valley of the shadow of death. He can walk us through great tribulation and pain and even suffering because we know he never abandons his children. And so he always gives them hope. He providentially cares for us. And so we can, we can look at this story and we can see how much care and guidance God took in protecting his son Jesus and realize that is how he cares for and protects us as messed up as it may seem at the time. And so despite pain, despite loss, despite exile, we see in this text a God still acting out his plan of salvation for his children. The enemy will strike. Pain will come. But hope continues and never ends. And it continues because God is just. This last section of of the scripture, starting in verse 19, starts with, but when Herod died. There's good news in this story. See, Herod was so ruthless that in the last few months of his life, as he felt himself nearing the end, he put out an order for the day of his death to kill the father of every single family in Israel because he wanted the entire nation to mourn on that day. We have that in history. We have the order written out. But by God's grace, it was not followed. See, Herod, like all dead men, cannot act from the grave. And when he died, his order's not carried out. And so we see that God is still active. There is a hope that comes in Herod's death that God remains just, that evil, tyrannical men who wage war against God, who wage war against his children, cannot live forever. And so if there's no justice for Herod, there's no hope for God's people. My, I don't have very many favorite poems. I'm not a poetry guy, but there's a poem I love to read every Christmas, and sometimes I even read it during the year, and it's by a man named Henry uh, Wadsworth Longfellow. Sam probably knows a bunch about him because he was probably in his his English class, but um, yeah, this poem says, just a line of it, and in despair I bow my head 
There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then peal the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill towards men. That is Christmas. The hate is strong. Herod's hate is strong against the Prince of Peace. His hate is strong. His reign of terror, though, ends with his death. King Jesus, his love is stronger. His reign of mercy for sinners begins with his death on the cross. King Herod responds to mockery of the wise men betraying him with violence. Jesus responds with mockery and betrayal by enduring violence. Herod dies. No one obeys his orders any longer. Jesus dies. He rises again. And generations of his people have been obedient to him as their king. Herod ordered death for many and was powerless to extend his own life. Jesus orders life. And he's powerful to walk out of his tomb and give everlasting life to countless. And so we celebrate that King Herod is dead and King Jesus is alive. That is why we gather. That is why what Christians place their hope in. So as we come into closing, we see that God was at work in Israel. He ends the threat of Herod. We see God was at work in Egypt. He sends an angel to direct Joseph to rise and take the family back into Israel. See, God gave Joseph revelation in a dream. He also gave him wisdom. And Joseph says, we're told to go back to Israel. King Jesus is coming back to Israel, but we're wise enough to stay away from Herod's son. He may be upset. So they bypass Bethlehem. They, they go to Nazareth. And in this, I think there's some real grace here because had they come back to Bethlehem, Jesus as five years old, six years old, seven, come back to Bethlehem, he'd be the only boy his age. And everyone in town that experienced that loss years earlier would have a daily reminder walking around of this bright, obedient, intelligent young child. And they would have talked to Mary. And they would have said, Mary, you don't understand. The king of Israel wanted your son dead and he killed our sons. We saw them bleed in front of soldiers. And later... Mary would see her son bleed in front of soldiers on the cross so that their sons could live. And so, I want you to think about that for a second. Last month, we had baby dedications up here, and there was multiple families here, multiple families in Snohomish. All those kids are gone. One family leaves. That family comes back. Do you want them in your road group? Do you want them in service? Do you want their kids running around kids' road? 
I believe, this is just me, I believe God was telling the mothers and fathers of Bethlehem, you've suffered enough. Jesus isn't coming back again. You don't have to see that every day. That's what I think. We're going to finish with what we know. We know that Mary and Joseph were from Nazareth. They were from uh, this region of Galilee. They had family there. And so there's this big open period of Jesus' life where we see 25 years of them settling in this town. And so um, Jesus lived with a family, with extended family close by, in a place that was comfortable, relatively. It made sense to them. They knew the people there. And, and Jesus wasn't just out in the woods by himself. He wasn't a nomad forever. Yes, he traveled around at the beginning of his life, but he settled and he lived and he dwelled with a people. And he wasn't with people in a royal boarding school. He was with the most backwards, backwater, broken, despised people in the entire land of Israel. See, the the land of Galilee teaches us something about our God and where he dwells. When he says, Emmanuel, God with us, God is dwells with them in Galilee. See, Galilee's um, like, honestly, how a lot of the north and a lot of the, the urban elites call places like the Deep South or um, rural areas. And even within that region of Galilee, Nazareth itself was particularly despised, right? Even people in Alabama don't like Mississippi, okay, right? It was the worst of the worst. And God says, In choosing to dwell there, he teaches us about his character and his kingdom. See, in Acts, the Christians were called the Nazarene sect. It was known as an insult. But it's what we, as we move on from Bethlehem, we come out of Egypt and think about this next season of Jesus' life, it's what we're to model as Christians. Humility, obscurity, Obedience. King Jesus was on this earth for 33 years. Only three of them were public ministry. 90% of his life was in obscurity. We know he's obedient. We know he probably worked with his father, but he spent the overwhelming majority of life with, with people who could not help him at all, who were poor, who were not well educated who had nothing to offer him, but he had everything to offer them. And even his future disciples doubted his Messiah King credentials because he was from Nazareth. John 1, 46 says, Nathaniel, talking to Philip, Philip was coming to his friend. He was excited about introducing him to Jesus. And Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. That's what we're doing in the book of Matthew. We're coming to see. We're coming to see the life Jesus lived. Because while as absolutely and paramountly important as Jesus' death on the cross is, if Jesus just needed to die for our sins, he could have let King Herod slaughter him alone in Bethlehem and had a whole bunch of angels come down and say, King Jesus just died for your sins. But apparently... God thought it important enough that Jesus live a life 
and for him to teach so that his people can know how to live and how to be. And so that's what we're going to be doing in the Gospel of Matthew. When we pick things up after Christmas, we're going to spend the next several months not talking about a baby who died, but a man who lived and a God who is alive. So in Jesus, that King, that God that we worship, we see that he's royal enough to be from Bethlehem, city of the king. He is despised enough and suffers enough to be exiled to a land of the enemy like Egypt. And we see that he is humble enough to dwell in Nazareth.